0: your beverages, and come on back in and take your seats, and we'll continue with our teaching time uh, together this morning. My name is Brad. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet, I'm the lead pastor here at Jericho, and um, happy Labor Day, last weekend of the summer, where I'm always reminded of all the projects that I intended to get to in the summer, but didn't yet, and so I have one more day, technically, to get to those, but some of them will probably be delayed. Well, this summer at Jericho, we have been working through uh, the stories of the prophet Elijah. And Elijah's history is recorded for us in the book of 1 Kings and then the first couple of chapters of 2 Kings. And what's amazing to me about Elijah is he just kind of bursts on the scene in 1 Kings chapter 17. He just kind of shows up. We don't get a lot about his backstory or his history, and there's actually only seven chapters in the Bible that speak about Elijah's life and his ministry, and yet he has this massive impact that overshadows that because he's this man who fears no man and who at the same time demonstrates very human relatable responses, very low moments in his life and in his faith journey. Because we see in Elijah's story, he's very bold. Like he rebukes kings and those in leadership politically and in every way for leading the people of God astray from genuine faith in God. And yet, Then he gets despondent about it, and he runs, and he lives in the wilderness, and he experiences God's miraculous provision for him as he's fed by ravens, as he lives out in the brook where there's no rain in the land for three and a half years. But we see another example of him being a mighty person of faith. He prays, and this widow who has a son who has died Elijah prays over him, not once, not twice, but three times he goes in and he prays for him and asks God to restore his life, and he's raised from the dead. First recorded instance in history of God responding to that prayer. And so he has this incredible faith moment where he intercedes and asks God for amazing things, and God responds to his bold faith. Elijah also has a bit of a flair for the dramatic He sets up, you remember, that conflict, an entire nation, he calls them to come out, to Mount Carmel, and he says, listen, we're going to just prove who really is God, the God who answers by fire, because remember, in the Old Testament, fire is a sign of God's presence and His power, and so the God who answers by fire is going to prove that He is the real God, and so Elijah calls, and the prophets of Baal are there, and they do their thing, and it's completely futile, and the entire nation sees this and responds And yet, immediately following this incredible and dramatic victory, Elijah runs away into the desert and pouts that nobody cares and that God has forsaken him and he's the only one who loves Jesus anymore around here. And yet, God in his mercy sends an angel and ministers to him in that time. And so, just reminded, like the book of James says, that Elijah is a human being like you and like me, He's fallible, he's capable of great faith and listening to God in incredible ways, but he's also prone to discouragement and prone to moments of weakness and fragility. And so Elijah, though, stands across the Old Testament as this kind of greater-than-life figure. He's referenced so many times in the New Testament and really sets in place a bit of a prophetic template for the role of the prophet. And the end of his life, which we're going to look at today, actually, I think, enhances or solidifies or confirms that even a little bit more. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to the book of 2 Kings. And we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 2, starting reading in verse 1. The story of Elijah being taken up into heaven. So when the Lord was about to take Elijah up into heaven in a whirlwind, and we'll see if I can get through the whole morning without confusing Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha, who's his protege, back in 1 Kings 19, uh, God gave him an assignment and said, go tap this Elisha guy on the shoulder. He's gonna follow you as the next prophet. So Elijah and Elisha are traveling from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord's told me to go on to another place called Bethel. But Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went down together to Bethel. The group of prophets from Bethel came to Elisha and asked him, hey, did you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Of course I know, Elisha answered, but be quiet about it. So just before we go any further in this story, What strikes me about this is that this is like the worst kept secret in prophetic circles that Elijah's last day on the earth is this day. Everyone seems to know it. But like think about it. What would you give to know your last day on the earth? Like if you knew what the last day of your life was going to be, Like a lot of us talk about, oh, we would be so prepared, you know, we would do all of these things and get ready for it uh, in these ways. But Elijah knows, he's been told by God that this is his last day on the earth. And Elisha also knows that this is Elijah's last day. And so Elisha wants to stay with his mentor to the very end. And not only do Elijah and Elisha know this, but also the school and the prophets in Bethel knows. And sometimes we think, oh man, if I knew it was my last day on earth, like I would do this, I would do that. Like what would you actually do if you knew that 24 hours from now would be the end of your life? Elijah knows. He knows that this is his final day walking on terra firma, and yet he seems in this encounter just to be as calm as can be Like he just goes about his business with a sense of very normal things that he would be doing. He's going around, checking on the schools of prophets, making sure they're still operating, that things are going around. And he goes to Bethel, then he goes to Jericho, and then he's going to go across, we'll see in a little bit, the Jordan River. And I wonder if Elijah has this sense of calm about his last day because he's done everything the Lord has asked him to do. He has, in the words of 2 Timothy 4, he's fought the good fight, he's finished the race, he's ready to receive his reward. And so he knows that he's everything that God has asked him to do, all of the assignments that he has received, he's been faithful to discharge them. And so for him, he can go about this last day with this sense of calm readiness to meet the Lord because he's done everything that the Lord has asked of him. And friends, I think that this is one of the great and precious things, promises that we have as people who walk with God, if you know Jesus as your forgiver and as your leader. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Paul can write and say, death has lost its sting because of the fact that I know what lies beyond the grave. And a lot of people in our culture still live with this sense of paralysis and crippling fear about their own death. And even some as they get closer and closer to that, the sense of the unknown and the sense of, have I done enough? Have I been a good enough person? You know, all of these things begin to just crash into their lives with just this sense of of crippling paralysis. And yet, we are promised a sense of of hope, those who know Jesus as their forgiver and leader. And so I want to remind you, if you're listening and you have not said yes to Jesus and you live with that sense of dread about your final day and what lies beyond that and a sense of uncertainty and a sense of fear that so many people do, the Christian faith gives us not only strength for today but gives us also hope for tomorrow and hope for beyond our lives here because there will be people uh, who today at the end of our time can pray with you and explain why they have that hope in their own lives and help you experience that sense of peace with God that persists even in the face of death and so Elijah can walk through his last day saying if I've done all the Lord has asked me to do I don't have to be afraid of what is to come and so he doesn't fear his departure from this world. So the scene actually plays itself almost comedically out again. I'll read from verse four. Elijah said to Elisha, hey, stay here. The Lord's told me I'm going on to Jericho. He's trying to ditch the guy. Elisha replies again, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. He wants this time with his mentor, this last few moments, and so they went together on to Jericho. Then the group of prophets from Jericho comes out, just like the group of prophets from Bethel came out to Elisha and says, hey, did you know that the Lord's going to take your master away from you? Of course I know, Elijah said, but be quiet about it. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord's told me to go on beyond the Jordan River. But Elisha replied, surely as the Lord and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went on together. And 50 men from the group of prophets also went and watched from a distance as Elijah and Elisha stopped beside the Jordan River. And then as they get to the river and they have this group of 50 prophets who are watching from a distance, we see Elijah's final miracle that God empowers him for. And it's like a little bit of like a throwback because it's, it's hearkening back to another time when God did the exact same thing for his people under Joshua's leadership. And so we're gonna see that Elisha, the successor, makes also a very, very bold request. Let's look at verse eight of 2 Kings 2. Elijah folds his cloak together the cloak is that, is that um, symbol of authority or, or that mantle of authority. So he folds it together and he strikes the water with it of the Jordan River. And the river divides and the two of them walk across the Jordan River on dry ground, just like the people of Israel did in Joshua's day. A sign of incredible faith and in God's presence and power doing something miraculous. And they come to the other side. And in verse 9, we see that Elisha makes his request. Elijah says, tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken away. And Elijah replies, please, let me inherit a double share or a double portion of your spirit or God's spirit and become your successor. And Elijah replies, you have asked for a difficult thing. But if you see me when I'm taken from you, because they both know he's leaving, then you'll get your request. But if you don't see me, then you won't. So Elijah knows he's leaving. Elisha, the new guy, asks the old prophet for a double portion, twice as much as Elijah had. Twice as much of God's spirit, twice as much of God's presence, twice as much divine power and authority as Elijah had. And when you start to think about it, there is an incredible audacity in this request. Because think about the amazing things that Elijah did for a moment by the power of God. Elijah raised a kid from the dead. By the power of God. He prayed and the entire process, the entire process of evaporation, condensation, and precipitation over an entire nation was halted for three and a half years, more than a thousand days because he prayed about it. And then when he prayed again, it rained. I mean, the dude has a seriously impressive resume of divine miracles. And then the new guy comes along, no seniority, no street cred, and says, yeah, man, I'll take twice what he had. It's a pretty bold request. Elisha wants a double-double. Double the presence, double the power. But you see, this notion of a double portion actually comes from the language of inheritance, which we bump into earlier in the book of Deuteronomy. So I'm going to need three volunteers to come forward and join me here. You don't have to do any speaking or acting. I will only say this. There is Tim Hortons involved for you. So I need three people. <laughs> Justin was like, up like a shot. He was like, I'm here. And it's his birthday, so happy birthday, Justin. And Al's coming. Okay, we need one more person. Okay, Katie's coming. Okay, oh, or Amaya. Do you want to come? Okay, okay. She's like, I will get those two. Okay, all right, okay. Okay, so we have three people, right? So we'll do, um, you know, this notion of inheritance. Let's just say, let's pretend that that I am... um, that we're all a family together, all right, and I'm a parent, and like, I'm gonna die, and so I'm gonna give you everything that I own. So I have divided it up, you know, into these Timbits. I've, it's come to this, everything I own is in 60 Timbits, I'm, apparently, just work with me on this one. So, so this is like my inheritance, and I'm going to give it to you guys. I'm gonna give you my inheritance. So you're like, okay, great, he's already got it nicely divided up, like there's three boxes, there's three of us. This is looking pretty good. I think I could live with this, but there's always a but, isn't there? So in the ancient Near East, they had a little bit of a different way of dividing stuff up for inheritance and it may not seem really fair to us but the way that they would do it is they would do it that the oldest person got <laughs> the oldest person got a double portion and then everybody else had to just live with whatever leftovers that they were and then Josh is like what in the world is happening to me here i was promised and it's my birthday he says all of these things So this is what happened in the ancient world. There was this notion that, like, the oldest one had lots of responsibilities, and so they got double the portion, and then the rest of them just had to, like, fight it out for whatever, like, old-fashioned glazed was left. So just, like, hold out your hands, all right? And we'll just be like, no, both hands. You can, I'm giving my inheritance to you. I'm going to be at least a little bit generous. So, whoa, whoa, we have inheritance down. All right, now hold out your hands, and we'll just be like... I'll give you as much inheritance as you can hold. Actually, you know what? I'll just even give you the box. This is, there you go. You can take that, so. All right, so that's what's left of my inheritance. This is what my life has come to. But you see, I've given the double portion over here, right, to the person who is the oldest. And it's like more than, there's like 20 in there and 20 in there. It's like way more than double what you have and way more than double you have, birthday boy. So... He's already eating into his inheritance, <laughs> as some of you are. <laughs> okay, let's thank our volunteers for this. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. You can take those. They're for you. You guys can eat it. Al, if you would like to choose to share your double portion inheritance, you can certainly certainly do that. Why? Why? <laughs> You're under no obligation, right? <laughs> but this is the notion of the double portion. If I'm living in the ancient world and I'm divvying my stuff up, I give the double portion to the oldest. The oldest receives twice as much as any other child of the inheritance. So Elisha is seizing on this and he's saying, You know what I want? I want that double portion. And he's making this huge request. He's like jumping to the front of the line and saying, Elijah, I know that Almighty God has poured out His Spirit on you in great measure, in strength, with boldness, and it's been pressed down, shaken together, and running over, and I want that in my life. I don't want the dregs. I don't want the dribbles. I want the double portion. I want the largest share of spiritual inheritance that I can get my hands on because I'm going to need it for the ministry that God calls me to. I want to press into God. I want to know God's heart. And I want to be a conduit of his presence and power in a way like an eldest son is close to the father. I want my double portion. And Elijah says in like a classic understatement, hmm, you've asked a difficult thing. (laughs) In other words, it's not my call to make. It's our heavenly father's call to make because he gets to divvy up the inheritance. And the way that you'll know if Abba Father has given you your request is if you see me with your eyes when I'm taken from you, then you'll know that in his gracious favor, God has said yes to your bold ask. And then in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, as they're walking along and as they're talking, suddenly a chariot of fire, again, remember fire is the presence, symbolizes the presence and power of God. A chariot of fire appears, drawn by horses of fire. It drives between the two men, separating them, and Elijah is carried by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha sees it. And so he cries out, My father, my father, I see the chariots and the charioteers of Israel, and as they disappear from sight, Elisha tears his clothes in distress, He's sad that his mentor has left, but he knows that his request has been responded to because he saw what he could not have seen in the natural realm. What a way to go. What a way to finish a significant life and ministry. In all of history, only Enoch and Elijah. Enoch from Genesis, the man whom the book of Genesis says walked with God, are recorded as never having tasted death of being auto-promoted into the presence of God. And in this case, it's by a whirlwind. So I'm gonna call foul on all of the classic depictions of art and Sunday school stories and all of those other types of things, strictly based on what the text tells us. Look at Second Kings chapter two verse one. It says the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a not a chariot, in a whirlwind. And then look again in Second Kings chapter two Verse 11, it says, Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. Almost every picture you see, he's riding in the chariot. That is not what the text says happened. He went in a whirlwind and there was a chariot and there were horses of fire, but it does not say that he rode in them. But Elijah It was as if God was saying, you know what, Elijah, my servant, has lived an impressive life, but not a perfect life. The only person, Jesus, who ever attained that standard, he gets the chariot of fire, and we'll see that in actually the book of Revelation. But Elijah gets the whirlwind. Even in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 66, it gives us this picture, and it says, the Lord is the one who's coming with fire. His swift chariots roar like a whirlwind, and he will judge the earth. So the Lord gets the chariot and the fire, Elisha gets the whirlwind. And we're going to see this incredible imagery again of God's kingship over all created order as we go into the book of Revelation. But can you imagine being Elisha and seeing all of this unfold before your eyes? I mean, you knew that your mentor was going to be taken, but you didn't know it would be like this. And can you imagine this group of 50 prophets standing at a distance and looking around and saying to each other, did you guys see what I just saw? <laughs> like that was something, wasn't it? And the narrative continues in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Elisha picks up Elijah's cloak because that's fallen. It's that symbol of prophetic authority or mantle. And in fact, Elijah has laid it on Elisha years ago in 1 Kings 19 as a symbol that he's going to be his successor. And as he picks it up, he returns to the bank of the river and he does the same thing that he saw his mentor do. He strikes the water and he says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And the river divided and Elisha walks across. Same cloak, same miracle, same mantle that Elisha throws down is now on the shoulders of Elisha. And Elisha not only gets to see Elijah when he's taken from him, but he also gets to keep that, in God's grace, he gets to keep that symbol of Elijah's authority and the authority that God has laid on him as a prophet. And so this is his initiation into the life of prophetic ministry that he will occupy, the start of his ministry in the power and authority that God grants him to have. And the 50 prophets are there to see and bear witness to the fact that Elisha is now taking up the role that Elijah had in the nation. And what's incredible as we go forward, and we'll look at it next summer when we go back into the Old Testament, for our summer series, when we see in 2 Kings that Elisha actually did receive the double portion. We see that he does double, uh, recorded in the text, is double the amount of miracles as Elijah did. He walks with this sense of amazing boldness and confidence in God. And part of it, I think he saw the boldness and the faith of his mentor. And he was also bold enough to not just say, I want what he had, but I actually want more. I want the double portion. And so the boldness that Elisha demonstrated in his request got me to thinking about the requests that I often bring to God. It got me thinking about, what am I asking God for? What are you asking God for? So often when we think about Our prayer life, it can uh, be summed up by just a list of stuff going on in the lives of those around me with a catch-all. God, please help them or bless so-and-so or could you please do something about such and such. And that's not wrong, but I want to say it's also not enough. One of the most striking things about the story of Elisha is that he is bold enough to ask God And God was gracious enough to ask him and answer him rather. He received his double portion, even though, even Elijah the prophet says, whoo, that is a pretty tall ask. I don't know about that. Think about the prayers that you have prayed over the course of this past week. Would you classify them as bold? Or would you say that they were more meek and timid? Kind of Telling God a list of stuff that if you were strong enough, you would look after it. Or telling God a list of what's ailing you and asking Him for just a little bit of Jesus juice to help solve your problems. I think sometimes our prayers are weak and tepid and small. And I wonder sometimes if God thinks to Himself, wow, you know, I have unlimited power and resources. I'm almighty God. And of all the things you could, that's what you're going to ask me for? In the book of James, in the middle of a section and a discussion on bold faith, the Bible reminds us that one of the core challenges of prayer isn't that God doesn't want to answer. It's that we're not that great at asking. James 4.2 simply puts it in plain language and says, a lot of times you do not have because you do not ask God. You see, Elisha had the option to simply say, hey, Elijah, can you ask God if he'll give me what he gave you? But he didn't. He was bold, and he was audacious in his ask. He actually had the faith to ask and press in for a double portion. He had a sense of expectancy and the boldness to walk into the throne room and asked for grace to help in his time of need. He was not shy, he was not timid. He asked, and he asked with humility, but he asked for big things. William Carey was a missionary to India in the 1700s. He was one of the first missionaries that started schools for under-resourced children. And he encountered incredible difficulties and persecution. Members of his family died and he would often say the future is as bright as the promises of God. He had this sense of faith in what God was going to do. He had a sense of boldness when you read through some of the prayers that he prayed and the things that he asked God for. I mean, he was asking God for uh, salvation of millions of people in the nation of India. His better-known quote fits our theme of boldness For the double portion today, he would challenge his students and missionary apprentices and he would say to them, you need to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. But don't attempt great things for God if you don't expect great things from God. What are you expecting from God today? What's your level of expectancy? Because embedded in this phrase are two challenges that I see reflected in my own life and in the life of a lot of churches as well. And the first challenge is that some people have developed over time just a low level of expectancy. And that can happen in a number of different circumstances. Maybe you feel like you've asked big things of God before And maybe God let you down or disappointed you, you feel. And so you've decided, you know what? I'm done with that, asking for big stuff. I'm just going to play it super safe because I've been disappointed before. And I've been hurt. So I'm just going to keep my prayers and my asks in the realm of what's totally possible so that that doesn't happen to me again. And so we close ourselves off to what God might want to do and lower our expectations so that they can consistently be met, which is, a need that we have as humans. And so the way that this plays itself out is you don't come to Jericho on a sunny morning expecting to encounter the presence of God. Or you pray prayers that God will bless food that's already passed inspection by Cheryl Weens and her team at the Canadian Food Inspection Agency and has been cooked to temperature and you've checked it already with a thermometer. You ask God for nice weather once you've already checked the weather app. (laughs) And know that it's not going to rain next weekend when we have our barbecue. <laughs> you pray prayers that are really safe, that don't take a lot of faith at all. Because you don't actually need God to do much in order to answer them. Your expectancy level is low and getting lower. But see, here's the problem with that. It's expressed in a, in a children's song. My God is so big. So strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And see, when we develop this low level of expectancy, it also creates a very shrunken view of God in our hearts and in our minds. And God fits... Then into this neat, tidy little box in our thinking. And we do not expect great things from God, and we pray safe prayers that are frankly an affront to the sovereignty of God. You're not asking for a double portion, you're asking for like a one eighth portion. And if that's you today and you found that yourself in in that place, then the first step would be just admitting it to God and saying, You know what, God, I have allowed my faith to shrink. And I want to repent of that. I want to get to that place where I expect that you're going to provide my needs. I expect that you're going to build your kingdom and grow it in my heart and my life. I come to you and ask that you grant healing when we pray. See, we, we expect God here at Jericho to work and to demonstrate his power. And so what's your expectancy level of God? The second problem that Elijah's request highlights is not expecting great things problem, but the attempting great things problem. And see, there's a group of us, and I will put myself in this category, is that we're we're activistically oriented. And we're tempted then because we can do stuff and we have gifts that God has given us or talents or abilities that because we are so great, we think that's why things are happening. It's because our musicians are so talented and the sound is so well mixed that the spirit of God is moving. Or because we have people on our board with such strong gifts of leadership that wise decisions are being made. Or it's because of our own strength that things are getting done. You see, under this model, you're like, I'm doing the 98% of it, God, and I just need you for the 2% here of stuff that I just don't have time this week to get done. You attempt great things, but you really feel like you're attempting great things Because, you know, God really is lucky to have you on His team. And in this strategy, you can hear a pride and an arrogance that doesn't leave room for God to do what He wants to do because we're so busy doing all of His jobs for Him that we don't actually need Him. We're just busy getting her done. And so we don't have any ability to wait in silence and ask God to move in power we're just about expediency so how about you do you have an expectancy gap where maybe faith is shrunk or is low or do you have an expediency gap where you're just tempted to jump in and make things happen without waiting for God most of us are going to err on one side or the other And so as we um, conclude our teaching time and our series today, I want to do a little bit of a different response. I'm going to ask John and Lorraine. They're going to pass out uh, a few things for us here. They're going to pass out some cups, and they're going to pass out some Sharpie markers for us, Uh, and we will conclude our Tim Hortons theme by doing what I'm calling the double-double challenge. So I did try to get us all Tim Hortons cups. I went to four Tim Hortons yesterday and asked if they would give me cups and or sell me cups. But apparently they don't do that because they thought I might put other coffee in it and then try to pass it off as Tim Hortons coffee, which I told them, we do Republica coffee and it's way better than your coffee. (laughs) After, which may be something why they didn't give me the (laughs) cups. I told them that after they said no. But anyways... (gasps) So the Tim Hortons, right, is the double-double. And the principle of the double-double is like there's not enough in your coffee. You need more. So you're going to add two things of cream and two things of sugar into it, which I will just say is an abomination <laughs> for those of us who take our coffee black. But if you like that, that's great. And it works for the purpose of illustration. So I'm going to track with it here. Even though I'm a Starbucks black guy, I drink my coffee black. But the double-double challenge is um, What are the things that you're expecting from God? When you order a double-double, you're asking for more to be put in, like lots more to be put in there. Elisha asked for a double portion. And when you get the double-double, you're amplifying, you're adding in. He wanted more in his life than Elijah even had in this. And so the double-double challenge is this. I want you to pick an area of your life that you want to commit to giving God more room in, in your life. That you, you want to leave gap for him to fill in some way. It might be your prayer life. Maybe for you, you want to go up a size or two in your prayer life. You say, God, I'm going to get bold in my prayer life and maybe you wanna write a specific prayer on this cup and say, I'm gonna be more bold when I pray for that family member who's walking far from you. Write their name down on the cup and just maybe bold, I wanna grow in boldness behind that. Begin to ask God as if you're asking him for big enough things. Maybe you want to do a double-double challenge in terms of your intake, the time that you spend listening to God, not just running around doing stuff for him. So maybe for you, what would it look like this week if in the area of spiritual practices you said, you know what, I'm going to spend double the amount of time in God's word, just listening to him. What does he have to say, giving me input? Maybe this past week you were like, okay, I think I spent two times doing the Project uh, 345 reading challenge that we've got bookmarks for at the Welcome Center. And maybe this time you're like, you know what, to go from two times to seven days a week, that's like, that's probably going to kill me in the first week of school and getting everybody back in. But I could go from two times to four times. Why don't you try to double the amount of time that you spend this week or this month in uh, Scripture intake? Even in the midst of a going back to school week, I'm confident you can find four minutes. Three minutes and 45 seconds is the average time it takes to read a chapter of the Bible, to spend and get quiet and listen to what it is that God has to say for you. Maybe for you, it's double, double on the boldness front. Maybe you want to stretch yourself and actually invite two people to come to the barbecue and church in the park next weekend. Events up on Facebook, click I'm coming, share it with a few people, call them, text them, send them a follow-up, and just say, hey, we're having something fun, why don't you you come out and and join us? If there's people that you know that don't have a faith community, what's your double-double challenge? Take the time to write it out, and then put this cup somewhere where you're going to see it, where you're going to remember it, where it's going to kind of be in front of you regularly. Maybe use it in the mornings for this week as your cup of coffee. Put your cup in there and say, "Okay, God, having my cup of coffee, and I'm going to be reminded of that area of my life that I want to stretch myself in and grow. I want to do a double-double. I want to leave room for your presence, for your power. I want double portion in my life. Ron and the team are coming, and they're going to lead us in songs. And these songs are chosen because they have uh, words in them that are, are a prayer, asking God to increase our expectancy, asking God to increase our faith, not just individually, but also collectively. And so I want you to take time during these two response songs to ask God, God, what's my level of expectancy for you? And maybe you just need to spend time talking to God and saying, God, I need that to grow. Will you help me and strengthen me by your spirit? Maybe you've got something in your, in your life, uh, an area of challenge, maybe it's a health concern that you want somebody to stand with you in. We would love to do that. Uh, Pastor Mike and myself and James and Katie will be available at the sides and at the back, and we would love to pray with you and invite God to work in powerful, miraculous ways in your life. So take the time, take your pen, maybe share it if uh, somebody else needs one around you, write down, what's your commitment? What's your double-double commitment? In what area do you say, God, I, I need you in this area of my life? And I want to keep pressing in in boldness and in faith and in confidence, believing that you are who you say you are and you will do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think or imagine. Once you've written that down, I'd invite you to stand and we'll worship together. You can spend time, if you'd like, kneeling. If you'd like to remain seated, that's fine too, but just expressing even in our posture a sense of expectancy, open hands, hands that are raised, saying, God, I want to even in the way that I'm singing this song declare to you that I have a deeper level of expectancy. I want more from you than I've experienced in the past. Let's worship together.